This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, and this is episode 64. And this is the first episode in which I'm going to experiment with a few kind of minor tweaks to the format of the program just to test out things that might work a bit better going forward, both for your listening pleasure uh, and to make it a bit easier to actually get some of these episodes out in the available time, which a quick peek behind the curtain is occasionally somewhat difficult. Um, So I'm going to do a thematic episode um, looking at an issue that's out there in the news at the moment, but try and keep it briefer uh, than we have perhaps on previous uh, episodes. Uh, And also... So at the end, just do a kind of quick run round some stories in in the news in in a bit less detail, just to kind of say what's out there in the world of philanthropy at the moment. So the the news story that I want to to kind of lead on and cover most is around the uh, Australian bushfires. I'm sure most people listening will be sort of aware of what's going on. There is a huge series of bushfires in many different areas of Australia, causing kind of huge damage in both rural and urban areas, threatening uh, the lives of human beings and also vast numbers uh, of animals. And, you know, as ever with these sorts of responses, there's been a, uh, with these sorts of issues, there's been a big philanthropic response. Um, and I thought it was interesting to look at that, both to kind of highlight a few things about the nature of that response itself, but also... Also, I think it's interesting particularly to compare and contrast it with the response to the Notre Dame Cathedral fire in Paris last year, um, which kind of raised some really interesting questions about philanthropy and people's perceptions of it. And it'd be interesting to see whether some of the similar issues arise um, in the case of the Australian bushfires. I think it's also worth saying just as a bit of background that um, you know this is of particular interest to me. I think partly because um, the environment is a, a, a cause that I is particularly close to my heart. Not that that makes me unique at all. I mean, I think plenty of people do, and I think an increasing number of people are aware of issues around the environment and the climate at the moment, and that that has really kind of driven people's focus on this um, this story about the Australian bushfires. Perhaps in a way that a similar story a few years ago would have been big news, but not quite as big news. As as it is now Um, and I think the other thing to say is that quite a a few of my in-laws on my wife's side are Australian and, and live out there so we're kind of hearing stories firsthand of quite how kind of uh, frightening the situation is and, and quite how concerned people uh, in Australia are about this and what it means for the sort of longer term future of the country. So I think the first thing that I wanted to sort of flag up when we're thinking about the nature of this particular disaster and what and what that might mean in terms of differentiating it from uh, Notre Dame, the first thing there is that this is obviously not a man-made disaster in the way that Notre Dame was. That was uh, accidental as well, if you remember. It was found not to be arson, but 
Um, it was due to the activities around uh, some construction workers accidentally leaving on some equipment, I believe, and it was an electrical fire, and that then led to the cathedral burning down. But also, I think, not just in the nature of the cause of the, uh, of the problem, but actually in terms of the nature of the thing itself that has been affected, um, that was a man-made building. Um, and in some ways, I think the interesting thing was that um, a lot of people, if you'll remember at the time of Notre Dame, criticised the philanthropic response on the basis that, it, whilst in itself it was good, it was kind of depressing that people were more willing to put their hands in their pockets uh, to repair a building than they were perhaps to deal with social or environmental issues. Um, I guess the interesting thing in the case of the Australian bushfires is there are multiple different dimensions to it that we'll come on to in a moment, but it very much isn't about uh, man-made structures or trying to, to repair those. Um, I think the other thing i just flag up that's interesting is um, when it comes to people's responses to disasters, there's some really interesting research that shows, and I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, that where the disaster is perceived as being at least partly due to human involvement or is partly sort of man-made rather than the result of an act of God or a kind of natural act, people are less likely to give because it introduces psychological elements of victim blaming um, or a perception that the the people who are the um, those who are suffering from the problem at least partly are uh, to blame for it or that they are part of a society that should take responsibility for it whereas when you have a sort of truly natural disaster people can more easily sort of say well you know there but for the grace of god go i um, and actually they they're more likely to respond positively to that it's interesting actually when you look at how the story has unfolded over subsequent weeks um, that the actually uh, subsequently some people who I think are taking issue with the extent to which the story around the bushfires is being used to further concerns around climate uh, change and the climate crisis are using uh, false stories and conspiracy th- stories about arson being the primary cause as a way of trying to bring the link back to human activity uh, and therefore potentially sort of play on the fact that that will make people less sympathetic Um, and you know I think everybody out there who knows anything about it has been very clear to say that you know there may be minimal instances of arson playing a part in some of it but actually you know by very very long way the major causes are natural. Um, I think another thing about the bushfires that's interesting is it's a kind of Notre Dame you know even if it it was a human-made edifice but also it's a single point you know it's a place it's a geographic location and a very tightly defined one um so but i think the australian bushfires are spread over such a vast area that what you don't have is that kind of totemic or single kind of iconic image that that brings in people's minds what they are uh, trying to address when they give money and it's sort of potentially harder for them to get their their heads or hands around what they're actually going to be doing with their donations but it's interesting to see that doesn't seem to have had much of an effect on the levels that people are giving in this particular instance Um, I think one of the things that's interesting in terms of the nature of the cause, um, the rightly or wrongly Notre Dame was perceived, I think, negatively, certainly when it came to the amounts of philanthropic giving, because it was seen as an easy thing for rich people to give to, because obviously giving to kind of big cultural institutions is, is very much something that is easy and uncontroversial for the elites, whereas actually 
the nature of the response to the bushfires is has nothing you know to do with that it affects everybody across society equally and actually in you know, a large part of the effects are being felt in probably poorer and more rural areas I think another thing that it's uh, important to flag up about this in terms of the philanthropic response is just the fact that it involves animals as well as people. Um, I think, you know, people respond extremely uh, emotively and sort of viscerally to images of animals being hurt by some of these issues and for a lot of people that's their kind of primary charitable driver. But I think, you know, just more more broadly, um, it kind of increases the range of uh, potential responses that people might have if they feel motivated to give and actually it means that there's a whole new set of kind of charitable institutions and organizations involved and then i think finally with this you know one of the significant differences between this and the uh, notre dame example obviously is that this is very clearly related to a bigger issue namely climate change and, and the climate emergency in a way that notre dame was not you know the the efforts to rebuild notre dame were about rebuilding notre dame Whereas even, you know, the the response to, to the bushfires, if it's something as practical as supporting a local uh, volunteer firefighting service, people still have it in their minds that potentially this is one of the signs of, you know, impending uh, kind of climate emergency. And therefore, people are also thinking about whether this needs to be a spur towards longer term uh, action of a different kind, as we'll come on to in a moment. So, so sort of following on from that, what what are the options if people feel um, compelled to give in, in terms of what they can give to? And I think it's interesting here that there are quite a sort of broad range of different things. So we've mentioned one being wildlife and animal rescue. So people are sort of seeing these images of, you know, I think it's upwards of half a billion, probably more now in animals that have been killed. And obviously Australia has a particularly high proportion of unique, iconic, endemic animals and sort of marsupials and things in particular. So seeing these images of lots of dead kangaroos and wallabies and, and whatever on the side of the road, I think has really hit a lot of people very hard. So they feel um, kind of compelled or driven to, to give to support that. I think interestingly uh, here, the, the actual relief effort itself has become a focus of of philanthropy, partly because it is ongoing. So I think in the case of Notre Dame, you know, obviously there were firefighters working on it, but it was contained within you know a day or a couple of days. Um, with the the bushfires, I think people are aware that all the work being done to address the problem is not stopping it. So there's a kind of ongoing need to support. The, the the firefighters who are in various different places trying to, to to battle the flames and particularly one of the interesting things is a lot of people have become aware that firefighters in Australia are largely drawn from the ranks of volunteers which is the case in many other countries and in the US I think it's also the case um, at a local level and I think for for some people this sort of you know they they then are a legitimate um, focus, focal point for uh, voluntary giving and it gives people something they can immediately kind of uncontroversially give to. But I think a few people have also then raised questions about whether that is appropriate and actually you know it kind of raises some of these quite deep issues about the relative, the relevant responsibilities of the state versus philanthropy and people saying oh hang on a minute you know if we're talking about combating this scale of problem in the future surely the government needs to take responsibility rather than leading it up to leaving it up to groups of volunteers. Um, I think the other things in terms of response that are interesting here, again, that are quite different from um, uh, Notre Dame, is you know there'd be much more of a focus here on 
dealing with the short-term issues, but also at the same time thinking about efforts to ensure longer-term preparedness because, you know, Notre Dame was a once-in-a-generation terrible accident, whereas large-scale bushfires in Australia are a regular expected occurrence. But people, I think, are now concerned that the scale of them is going to get much worse given the changes to the climate, that actually action needs to be taken to ensure that something is done about that. And and I think that brings us on to the kind of broader question of people responding to the specific disaster going on in Australia at the moment, but taking it very much uh, the message being that we need to ramp up our efforts to address the wider issues around the climate crisis and kind of speed up all of those things and whether that involves on the ground efforts or whether it involves political advocacy. And and that is also um, just finally an interesting particular issue in Australia. I know Christian Seibert, who's a previous guest on uh, on the podcast, um, f- uh, flagged up in, in an article that, that he was quoted in that, um, you know, there have been some sort of worrying uh, efforts by the Australian government to, to kind of clamp down on the ability of charities and non-profits over there to advocate on things like environmental issues and that actually if people are you know driven to um, to respond to, to the, the bushfires over there one of the things that they can do more broadly is to kind of support organizations that are trying to defend some of those rights uh, with a view to the future um, so you know, that's kind of interesting other angle on it as well then i think the the other thing that we that i want to come on to look at just in a moment um is what the actual nature of the charity and philanthropy is and what some of the kind of interesting features of that have been so stay tuned for that Okay, so we're back. Um, in this brief section, yeah, I just want to talk about the the nature of you know who is actually giving to uh, the response to the Australian bushfires and how they're doing it. Um, so the first thing to say, I think, again, a, a difference between Australia and and France here that's interesting. In general terms, Australia has a stronger culture of charitable giving in measurable terms than France does and whether that is to do with kind of different historical differences or kind of differences between you know perceived responsibilities of the state versus philanthropy uh, we can't really go into here but if you look at things like the world giving index that CAF does Australia has always come very high on that in terms of levels of participation in giving and France comes significantly lower um, and uh, Australia has you know a well-developed charity sector with a kind of independent regulator it has a, a lot of wealthy individuals many of whom are kind of significant philanthropists so all the pieces are kind of there um, I think looking at that issue around wealthy people and elite philanthropy first that's an interesting one because one of the um, sort of defining things that became um, a real source of debate following Notre Dame was the number of extremely wealthy French people who kind of piled in and, and pledged rather than gave uh, very large amounts of money. And then there was subsequently a lot of controversy about whether they were doing this just for PR purposes um, and whether you know it was just for, for tax reasons and all that sort of thing. We haven't seen, I think, so much cynicism so far about that. There have been quite a lot of celebrities and sports people in Australia who've come out and given large sums of money and and in a lot of ways those people are often you know the more palatable face of being wealthy and actually you know most of the time they're not they're nowhere near as wealthy as the really truly super wealthy people there have been some sort of calling out uh, Australia's you know genuine elite for not responding uh, in the way that that one might hope 
uh, and particularly, um, we'll come on to in a minute, one of the sort of big news stories out of the, the response has been the Facebook fundraiser set up by a comedian called Celeste Barber, which has absolutely kind of skyrocketed. But in her initial kind of framing for that fundraiser, she she sort of said, you know, come on, wealthy Aussies, like you saw what what French uh, elites and billionaires did in response to Notre Dame. So why can't you kind of dip into your pockets for this? Because, you know, that was obviously a terrible thing. But this is this is our disaster and and, and you needs you guys to step up to the plate. Um, I mean, one thing that occurred to me about that that's interesting is the, the nature of um, wealth creation in Australia there are, you know, there's plenty of sort of technology millionaires and potentially billionaires and, and media moguls, but there are also a lot of people who have made and continue to make their money in extractive uh, industries and, and around industries that deal in natural resources. And given the links to um, issues around climate change, I would I would imagine there is a kind of awkward question for some of those donors around, you know, whether people, even if they give money, whether people will question um, whether you know actually that in any way compensates for the role that they they have in having sort of created some of these issues in the first place, which goes to some of the stuff we discussed in the episode on tainted donations. Um, and actually, it is something that has has come out in uh, in subsequent news stories. So one big Australian donor. Uh, it's called Andrew Forrest, rather brilliantly known as Twiggy. He uh, subsequently announced a donation of uh, $70 million, I think, which was you know, by far the, the biggest amount of money that has so far been been announced to go towards addressing the bushfires. And he got you know, a fair amount of praise for this, but also there was quite a bit of criticism. Um, some of it, the kind of standard stuff that you see throughout history, when whenever somebody announces a, a huge gift, people saying, well, that's fine, but actually in proportion to your overall amount of wealth, it's not really anything, is it? So why are you not giving more? Um, there were some specific concerns about the fact that part of the donation at least was going towards his own foundation. But there was also, I think, some concern expressed that, you know, again, he had made a lot of his money in kind of fossil fuels and mineral um, extraction. And actually, you know, this was all part of a PR effort and that really if he wanted, if he really genuinely cared about issues of climate change, he would he would change the nature of the way he did business and made money. Um, and I suspect, you know, other other concerns of that kind will come out as this story continues. Um, and I think more broadly, there's going to be, you know, more criticism of philanthropy will probably come out in the wash, because I think that tends to be the nature of these things as uh, as people start to move into kind of comment and analysis mode rather than just the news story itself. The other bit that I want to flag up that's been a particular feature um, of this story as time's gone on is the role of social media uh, and kind of peer group effects when it comes to fundraising, which raises a couple of interesting questions, I think. So I already mentioned the comedian Celeste Barber. So she set up a Facebook fundraising page initially with you know relatively modest ambitions. She wanted to raise, I think, $30,000 for firefighters in a particular area of Australia, but just happened to be so successful in the way she framed it and it was kind of passed around people that it, it, it just took off and became the biggest fundraising page Facebook has ever had. And it's so far managed to raise uh, $50 million and counting. Um, and in a way, this raises sort of a classic problem with disaster relief efforts is that when they're successful, they often end up raising money that is sort of out of proportion with the actual scale of the problem or, or even more so the scale of any organization's ability to, to actually absorb the money and put it to good use. So in this particular case, I think 
the fire department or organization that she was giving to there's no way on earth they could spend 50 million dollars in any reasonable uh, amount of time so i think they're in discussions about whether some of that money can be kind of distributed across the country um more equitably and, and sort of put to good use now then there have been slightly sort of uh, weirder stories around social media as well that, uh, you know, maybe it's because it's a particular Australian thing and embodies a kind of Australian sense of humour and a view of the world. But um, So one is the, the phenomenon of the nude philanthropist, which uh, caught quite a lot of uh, column inches. So this uh, is a sex worker called Kaylin Ward, I think in California, who had had personal experience with the wildfires over there and, and sort of felt very strongly about it. And she decided that she wanted to raise money to help uh, people in Australia who are dealing with a similar problem over there and kind of, you know, again, uh, thinking about, you know, mission-aligned uh, charitable giving. She decided the best way to do that was to use the skills that she had available to her. So she offered to send nude pictures of herself to anyone donating $10 or more to the bushfires, um, which, you know, subsequently, perhaps understandably, became uh, a sort of viral phenomenon. Uh, and apparently she raised more than an estimated $700,000 uh, in four days, um, and has subsequently spawned a whole spate of copycats uh, offering to send pictures of uh, this, that, and uh, whatever else you might want uh, to anyone around the internet. Which I guess, again, you know, the, is a slightly silly story, but it does raise some interesting questions about what is going to happen as we potentially shift more towards a model where the most successful fundraising is led by individuals who are not the employees of a particular organization and it's done kind of on behalf um, actually the nature of that fundraising and what happens with the money it becomes sort of out of the control of traditional charities and non-profits and finding ways of adapting to that I think is going to be a challenge as an example of how far this could potentially go another story which had the, the ring of something slightly apocryphal but had been reported in a few places um, was about a, an email or a social media status update I think that had gone viral where uh, a drug dealer in Australia again who professed to be particularly touched by this story and want to respond, uh, offered to donate 10% of the proceeds from sales of cocaine to the relief efforts. Um, which again I think takes it even further uh, and really sort of raises some questions, uh, interesting questions for with a view to the future about you know tainted donations and whether charities would be happy for that kind of fundraising to take part on uh, to on their behalf. So that's that's just what I want to say about the Australian bushfires. I think you know it's an interesting story in itself. Obviously a terrible one. Um, I think many people are still kind of driven to to give generously to that. But I think in terms of what it says about uh, the nature of charity and philanthropy, there are some really interesting things that have come out of it and I'm sure more will continue to and I think it is an interesting thing to contrast with the response to the Notre Dame uh, fire last year and the perceptions of that because I think there are some interesting overlaps but some pretty significant differences as well. Okay in the final section I just want to come on and touch on a few other stories that have been uh, in the news over the last couple of weeks uh, sort of whistle stop tour of the philanthropy news that's too hot to hold so stay tuned for that. Okay, so, well, whisper it quietly, but we're going into the last section and there is actually a real danger we might keep things 
on track with the ambition of coming in under half an hour. Um, so I just wanted to have a very quick run around some other news stories that caught my eye, um, and I'll put links to all of them in the show notes so you can read them in more detail. So the first one, uh, which follows up on something we talked about on the podcast last year in the episode on tainted donations, was the story about the links between the disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein and MIT, particularly MIT Media Lab. Um, I noticed there was a report that MIT has released um, the details of an investigation uh, that it's conducted into those links, and they don't make for very good reading, I think, for the institution and certain many sort of senior figures within it because there's clear evidence people were very well aware of the issues with Epstein and continued to uh, cultivate a relationship with him and take his money and use him as a go-between with other uh, sources of philanthropic funding. So actually in terms of that question of the responsibilities of recipient organisations when it comes to taking tainted donations, actually it's, it's a kind of interesting case because clearly MIT were well aware of those issues and made the decision that actually you know they they would just go ahead and and take the money um so actually in in terms of the ethics i think it's um it's probably less defensible than many other examples of that another story that was interesting uh to me um that came up i think last week as we record this was an article and an op-ed in the wall street journal asking whether there is a war on philanthropy um, this was by Carl Zinsmeister, who I think was a policy advisor under the Bush regime, um, and obviously a Republican, um, and is uh, involved with an organisation called the Philanthropy Roundtable in the US, which is uh, sort of pretty heavily kind of pro-philanthropy organisation. Um, but he basically, this is part of the, the the backlash to the wave of philanthropy criticism that we started to see last year, and I predicted it turns out accurately. Uh, in the last podcast episode, we'd see more of this year. But he, he sort of came up with quite a polemic article, some of which was actually quite interesting, but I think the, the tone of it, to, to my mind, was was wrong, and, and some of the arguments were used in a way that I would not feel comfortable with, um, but essentially arguing that the danger in kind of buying into a narrative of um, critique of philanthropy uh, aimed at elite philanthropy is that it would end up damaging philanthropy more broadly and kind of undermine the spirit of voluntarism within America um, that was such a vital part of its democracy. And to some extent, there's a grain of truth in that stuff in that, you know, I think the conflation of elite philanthropy with mass giving is problematic on both sides. And, you know, I would be concerned if some of the justifiable and well-focused and well-thought-out critiques of elite philanthropy were just applied without thinking to all forms of giving. But equally, I think using mass giving and the kind of friendly face of civil society and philanthropy as a shield to try and deflect any criticism whatsoever of elite philanthropy is quite disingenuous. So I think the article kind of um, fell down on those grounds. Um, I think also what it flagged up to me is overall, I don't think we can expect everybody to sort of play nicely and agree and to start taking into account large amounts of nuance anytime soon. I think, unfortunately, as the debate about philanthropy has become part of the mainstream over the last couple of years, as with any debate in the mainstream, it has become highly partisan and polarised. And I think the danger is that 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 will continue. A couple of other quick things. There was an interesting article from Columbia Journalism Review about the philanthropic funding of non-profit news organisations. Um, and this made me think back to a podcast from last year that we did with Samia Padania talking all about philanthropy and journalism. And the kind of this article was about a reporter, a paper I think that's recently out, and again raising some of the questions about whether 
philanthropic funding, even when well-intentioned and well-motivated, potentially poses problems for non-profit news organisations because it skews the focus of what they do towards the donor's interests or kind of what they think the donor is is going to want to see and therefore kind of undermines the independence of those organisations. So I'll put a link in the show notes to that one. And then a final story, just a a little story that probably nobody saw at all, um, but Prince Harry and Meghan Markle um, of uh, UK royal family fame, I'm not sure whether you heard, but have announced that they are stepping away from, or want to step away from their duties or their frontline duties as members of the royal family and focus more on being independent people of means um and as part of that uh the relevant part for what what we talk about on this podcast is that philanthropy and the role of their philanthropic foundation is a sort of big part of of their plans it turns out and it's you know this is an interesting question i think it it raises some interesting questions about what the role of the royal family is in relation to philanthropy i think traditionally they have been largely kind of figureheads and and uh, fundraising tools as patrons and these sorts of things and and going out and kind of glad handing on behalf of existing organizations but harry and meghan appear to be taking you know a relatively almost a kind of venture philanthropy approach and wanting to really kind of get involved in the nuts and bolts of what the organization is doing and align it very much to their own values and using it as a tool to project those values to the outside world um i think it's interesting whether that heralds some sort of shift in the perceived role that royal family can play in relation to philanthropy i think it also raises some quite interesting questions about the nature of wealth um, and whether there are differences between created and inherited wealth when it comes to to philanthropy Um, i mean certainly historically there is a sense that there are differences because people who've created their own wealth feel more comfortable potentially with giving it away because they made it for themselves in the first place they feel a sense of ownership and they might have confidence that they could make the money back again Um, whereas those who've inherited their wealth traditionally might have felt some responsibility of stewardship to kind of keep that money maintain it and pass it on to the next generation and there's an interesting question about whether harry and meghan are applying the mindset of created wealth philanthropy to very much inherited wealth philanthropy and what that sort of challenges or opportunities that might pose so that's just a couple of the stories that i've seen um i'm gonna leave it there because we're uh in danger of running long again but i think we're just about going to do it anyway it just remains to say if you've been interested in the stuff we're talking about and want to read more do check out the giving thought pages at the CAF website follow me on twitter at rodri underscore h underscore davis or if you like stuff more about sort of history and interesting readings about philanthropy uh, at philiteracy if you've got any ideas for topics we could cover on the podcast or guests we could interview, uh, drop us a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about it, write us a nice review, hire a skywriter, whatever you can do to help promote the podcast more and get it out to the people who might enjoy it, I'd be ever so grateful. I'll see you next time. Bye! <laughs>